We're going to be in Daniel chapter 11. This morning, we finished Daniel chapter 10 last week. So if you have your Bibles, go there. We're going to cover about 19 verses today. And this is almost entirely world history. In fact, preparing for this particular sermon felt like I was just preparing for a history exam on the period of time that took place between the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, because that's, that's about what this prophecy covers. If you weren't here with us last week, you need to be reminded, Daniel is a prophet of God who was in exile in first Babylon, then was taken over by Persia, and he's there now under Persian rule as he receives a vision from God that he feels like he understands in a large part. He gets the details of it, but he, he needs help from God to know how to apply this, to know what to do with it. And so he cries out to God. He spends three weeks mourning and fasting, crying out to the Lord to, to send some help for him to understand. And in the past, the Lord had, in fact, sent him angels on two different occasions. He sent the angel Gabriel to come to Daniel and explain a vision that he had, help him understand something about the future. That's what's taking place here. If you were with us last week, you'll know in chapter 10, I argued that I, while he's not named, I, I suspect that the angel who's talking to him right now is the angel Gabriel. And he told us that the reason it took him 21 days, it took him those three weeks of a delay to arrive to Daniel, it's not because God was too busy with other prayer requests, but because he was sent and had to battle out in a spiritual realm with a demon that was called the Prince of Persia. Really interesting and crazy text. It's not, a, not very like many of the texts in the Bible. And so we were looking at the nature of demons and angels. That was a lot of last week as we were setting up for chapter 11. But towards the end of that chapter, Gabriel made it clear that his fight with the prince of Persia was so intense he needed an ally. He needed reinforcements. And so he called upon Michael, the second of two named angels in the Bible, first being Gabriel, second is Michael, and Michael came to his aid to war against this Persian prince, that demon. This morning, uh, for sake of time, rather than read through the whole text and then go back through it again, I'm just going to pray to... Ask the Lord to help open our eyes for Daniel 11. Uh, we're going to dive into the text. But right before I do that, I want you to know, if you were to study Christian authors, uh, Christian commentators, Christian writings on this particular three chapters worth of a vision, chapter 10, 11, 12, you'll find enormous agreement on chapter 10, which is what we covered. I think, I think it's why we were able to cover it in one week. But once we get to chapters 11 and 12, the historical events that are prophesied with such detail have caused those who doubt supernatural things to think that there's no way it could have been a prophecy. And so liberal scholars have become convinced that the accuracy of Daniel's prophecy here could not have been written before the events. It must have been written after the events, and he's recording history. And so that's what they suspect is the case. If you study this at all, that's what you'll find pretty quickly. But as people of the Word who trust the Word of the Lord, not only do we have that trust, but we also have built into the passage itself many indicators that show the language being used, the time frames understood then, the way that the Hebrews in exile would have communicated certain things certainly proves this was written before these historical events took place. Let's go ahead and pray as we prep for this history lesson being given to us by an angel, recorded by Daniel, and uh, then we'll dive into the text. Father, this morning, I know that I love history. I'm a student of history. I, I love studying it. I, I get fascinated by it, but I know that that is not always the case 
for all of my brothers and sisters. And so I ask that today as we walk through these things, that you would help us not to merely see these as interesting historical events that we could find Wikipedia articles for and uh, we could learn in any secular setting. But Lord, help us to see why it is that you were prophesying these events for Daniel, that you were giving him this clarity. God, we want to love you more. We want to worship you better. We want to obey your great commission with a greater ferocity than before we read through the book of Daniel. So use this word to help us, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and turn to Daniel 11. I'll put the verses uh, one or two at a time up here. You can follow along. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Quick pause. You might know that there's no chapter or verse headings, uh, those little numbers and the break between chapters uh, in the original text. Those were inserted hundreds, even thousands of years later in order to help us find where we all are. So I can say, turn to Daniel 11. You can go right to that page. But commentators for centuries have noted that the language of verse 1 here and the last verse of chapter 10, verse 21, shows that they're probably supposed to be together. So this begins by saying, as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. This is that angel, I think Gabriel, speaking, and he's saying that he stood up to strengthen Michael, the angel that was just referenced earlier than this. So the pro- following the pronoun pointers here, this is probably not meaning that, that uh, Gabriel stood up to strengthen Darius, but that Gabriel stood up to strengthen Michael as he was fighting against that Persian prince. That's probably what's happening here. Daniel just took about a solid chapter, all of chapter 10, to be prepared to receive the vision. To be prepped in his mind, in his heart, he was able to stand up, he's actually able to focus and listen, and here is the vision given starting in the next verse. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now you'll remember that Daniel, as he's writing this, hearing this from the angel, he's living in the days of the Persian Empire. Okay, actually, the early days of the Persian Empire. But here, the, name, the angel references three more kings that will come after his kings that he's following now. And finally, a fourth. Historically, we can see these as Cambyses, Smyrdas, Darius, followed by King Xerxes. Xerxes is the fourth king that shall be far richer than all of them. Now, Xerxes might be a kind of familiar name for you because Xerxes is that same king in the book of Esther who who surveys the land and takes the the prettiest of the women and, and Esther ends up then who is a Jew, saving the Jewish people. The Lord puts her there just at the right time. That's that king, Xerxes. That Xerxes is the same Xerxes of uh, Spartan Leonidas, King Leonidas fame where, where as he came against the Greeks in the West, the Battle of Thermopylae with those 300 Spartan warriors faced off against King Xerxes, 10,000 Persian immortals. That's that famous King Xerxes who sought to advance his kingdom westward. He was the richest of the Persian kings at the time. And he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. That's exactly what happens. Greece was just a whole bunch of individual city-states. They would oftentimes war with each other, fight. Uh, They were kind of divided up mostly by geography, relative peace that could exist between those states. But when the Persian king advanced westward across Asia Minor and into the actual land that we look now back as Greece, 
They combined their forces together and repelled the assault of Xerxes, effectively pushing back on the Persian Empire. Verses continue, three through four. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. This Greek king, the one who shall arise here, is none other than Alexander the Great. You might remember this from history lessons back in junior high, high school age. Alexander the Great was a young Macedonian ruler who just ran amok west from Macedonia, from Greece, west across all of the empire of the Persians, utterly decimated what was there, took control of all of it as he went. He was the undefeated uh, mastermind of that, uh, that, that assault, but he died at a young age. He died in his early 30s. When he died... He only had one young son who would go on to actually be killed as people were trying to vie for power. But his giant, massive kingdom that spread all the way from Asia Minor into Greece to the eastern edge of the empire up against India and beyond, down to Egypt, that entire area was divided into fourths. Divided into fourths. Not perfectly evenly, but there were four of his generals who eventually, after the dust settled, took over the landscape. This, of course, was already told to us in Daniel chapter 8. So if you were with us back a few chapters ago, we covered in Daniel 8 the vision of the ram and the goat. And the goat referenced there was Alexander, and it's talked of the four horns that came out of the goat that basically took over the kingdom from the one Alexander, was split into those four, and so much time in the book of Daniel was already spent on that period of history. So the angel's not going to revisit that. He's not going to rehash all those details. The Lord has had him to talk about a different period of time. So he quickly, in just these two verses, mentions Alexander and moves on to other things. After Alexander's death in 323, a massive power struggle between his generals, his officials, and even family members lasted for decades, even centuries. There were large-scale wars that historically we remember as the Diodoki. The Diodoki were those series of wars where they were battling, vying over power. And those four superpowers were that of Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Those latter two, Ptolemy and Seleucus, would be the dominant forces. They'd eventually push out the other two. And for the next couple of centuries, those were the reigning superpowers of the region. So for the next 15 verses, all we're going to be covering is the north kingdom of the Seleucids and the southern kingdom of the Ptolemies. That's what we're covering. The Egyptian pharaohs of the Ptolemaic Empire versus the Syrian kings of the Seleucid Empire in the north. That's what's going to be going down over the course of the rest of this time. Little attention is given at all to anyone other than those two kingdoms. They are the ones who are warring. Now, before we move into the next verse and see what happens here, I want to make it clear that you, you log something. Just put this away because we're going to have to deal with this in upcoming weeks. And this might not be at all surprising to you. You might be very familiar with this, but it's important to point out because it'll come up later. Not only do these two verses cover a period of history, about 50 years of battles back and forth, but there's a 150-year gap between verse 2 and verse 3. A 150-year gap between verse 2 and verse 3. So when this angel's talking about the Persian Empire, uh, then Xerxes, and then Alexander. 
Well, if you remember your history, I didn't. I had to research this. Uh, it, was, it was 150 years of time between Xerxes and Alexander. And the angel just leapfrogs over. He just, he just hops right over that century and a half of time. Now, this is probably not at all surprising, because whenever you retell history, or in this case, foretell history, the teller is going to hop over uh, certain events to highlight the most pertinent parts. That's what's happening here. I just want you to remember that, because in the next couple of weeks, as we look at the rest of this telling, that's going to come back into play again. Because this angel doesn't seem to care to go, oh, by the way, 150 years later, and then he says, next king. He just jumps. And so... That's what's heard by Daniel, and that's what we get to read today. I'm going to move rather swiftly through this next section. Um, these next verses, 5 to 20, cover nearly 200 years of history. So I'm going to take this about a paragraph at a time and just very briefly explain uh, historically what happened in each of those pieces because this is written in God's holy word. Verses 5 and 6. Then the king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Again, what we're going to cover for these 15 verses is the northern kingdom battling the southern kingdom. The Syrian kings fighting the pharaohs. The, uh, the Seleucids fighting the Ptolemies in Egypt. When the Ptolemies took over Egypt, they assimilated into the culture that was already there. So while they were Greek and Macedonian, when they took over Egypt, they began worshiping the Egyptian gods. They even called their kings pharaohs. Uh, they did brother-sister marriages to, in, order, in order to unite powers together. All the types of things that were similar with ancient Egypt, prior ancient Egypt, are now true of these Macedonian, these Greeks, who've taken over all of this particular area of that empire. So this is the pharaohs of Egypt versus the Syrian kings in the north, and that's what we're going to see play out over this time. There's a series of battles between even the rulers. Individual parties uh, of their kingdoms will fight over and vie over who will be given power, but eventually you'll see dominant north and south leaders that will battle against each other for hundreds of years. There were, of course, as is expected, short periods of relative peace. And those were marked by truces and agreements, and on an occasion, political marriages. Now, this is one of those really interesting moments of history where the southern king, Ptolemy, sends his daughter to marry the northern king, King Antiochus II, or Antiochus II, depending on how you pronounce that. So the southern king sends his daughter up there, and her name's Berenice. He goes, go up there, marry him, and then we'll have a unity, we'll have peace there. But there's just one problem. Antiochus II was already married. He was already married to a woman. He had to get divorced to her and cast out her and his previous son that he had with her in order for the political marriage to stand with Berenice. And so that's exactly what he does. He kicks out Laodicea, who's his first wife, and her son, and he marries Berenice. Well, Laodicea doesn't like this too much, as you could imagine. And so Laodicea, the, the northern queen, uh, who's kind of pushed out, she poisons to death, her ex-husband and his new wife and their new baby boy. Kills all of them. And then she puts her son back into power. That's why they sought to do this with a kind of agreement, but it didn't actually work out. It actually 
ended up making the northern queen, and now her new son ruler, more aggressively against the southern kings. And that's what's said basically in the next couple of verses. Look at 7 through 9. And from a branch from her roots, that's Berenice's roots. Berenice is the poisoned, now dead Egyptian queen who moved up, uh, Egyptian woman who moved up and married the northern king. Now that she dies, a branch from her roots, her brother in the south is enraged by the fact that she was murdered in the north. And so while he's already in a bit of a, 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 a campaign, kind of fighting on the fringes, this new fury causes him to press hardcore into the north, wiping out much of that area and taking it for the south. That's what happens. The king of the uh, continues, and from her branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. See, he was enraged that his sister was killed. He comes and prevails over them. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter, king of the north, shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Sometimes this is just a quick sentence. It's hard to follow the pronouns. But basically, the northern king goes up, kicks the butt, southern king kicks the northern king's butt. He goes back down to his land. And when retaliation strikes come, the north goes, let's go. Let's go get the southern king. They fail, and they have to return back with their, their tail tucked between their legs. Verse 10 says what happens next. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So you get it? Still north king, south king fighting together. They're constantly taking over each other's capitals, fighting against each other's fortresses. This time, though, the princes in the north attack the south. So they, they prepare, they, they fall back, they regroup, and they go again. This is literally north fights south, south fights north, all over the place for these few centuries. Verse 11 through 13. Then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. So basically what happens here is Ptolemy III is the king who's ruling down in Egypt. He goes to battle against the northern king, against south, south first north, and, and they battle at a site called the Battle of Raphia. And Raphia was kind of in the northern portion of Egypt. It, it's in the south part of the Gaza Strip, as you were to look at it in a map today. And so these two forces clash right there. And this is a very, very notable part of this period of history. Historians point to the Battle of Raphia as a turning point of the times. From this point forward, even though the southern Egyptian king will win this battle, his, his land will be fractured. Revolts will come and will eventually lose the power. The Egyptian kings will never have a full restoration of the amount of power that they had during this reign. So this is the turning point, even though there was a victory. Battle of Raphia is one that if you were to just type this into a search engine, you'd find tons of videos on it and articles on it. It's a really notable time period in history, this particular battle. And one of the reasons that it's so notable is because of its size. 150,000 men battled against each other. That's hard to get in our minds. Like today, a lot of battles that take place today and in the last maybe 50 years are the kind of battles that guns will shoot at each other, people from uh, hundreds of yards away, bombs will be dropped by airplanes, uh, there'll be landmines out in open areas where no one else is and people can die that way, artillery can launch miles, uh, sea assault, all these types of things. 150 men, though, facing off, face-to-face, -face, 
sword to sword, spear to spear, pike to pike. That's a significant battle. And one of the most notable points of this particular battle is it is the only time in the history of the world that African elephants, war elephants, fought against Indian war elephants. An elephant, a war elephant of the day, would literally be like a tank. And so whoever had the most elephants typically would win. They could kill off 100 men in a battle. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for them to be uh, wearing all their sword uh, tusks and uh, trampling men to death and, and just destroying the enemy forces like a tank might against infantry today. Uh, but they could even take maybe 100 human arrows, could actually strike and stick, and they still survive to the end. These were beasts that were without compare back in the day. And yet... Another thing that makes this so notable is that the northern king had more war elephants than the southern king. So the cards were stacked against Ptolemy in the south, and his forces, as they clash, begin to retreat. And Ptolemy, in a moment of great courage, rides his horse to the front and begins spurring his men on and say, let's go, man, and he inspires them with his courage to move into the battle And they do just that, and they win that battle. They soundly defeat the northern king. He flees, and that's why it says here, he shall raise a great multitude, that's the northern king, but it shall be given into his hand, his, another pronoun now, the southern king's hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart, southern king, Ptolemy, shall be exalted. I just won this battle, look at me. And that's exactly what happened. And he shall cast down tens of thousands in that battle, but he shall not prevail. Because even though they won that battle, for the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years, 15 years we know in history, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So again, summary is, north fights south, south fights north, lifetimes of people pass, and the struggle continues. Verse 14. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. I'm just going to pause here for a second, because this is the first time in this vision given to a Jew about what's going to happen in the history of the Jews, that the Jews are mentioned. All those battles were taking place over Israel. That was the land. That was the battlefield. Palestine, Israel, that landscape was the battlefield for all of this struggle. That's what's going down. In fact, if you were to look at a map and you were to just kind of uh, circle or shade in the parts of the geography that belong to the Ptolemaic Empire, they'd be in the northeast portion of, Egypt, uh, of Africa here, and then the rest of the Seleucid Empire, they'd be almost entirely to the east with a little bit that kind of overlaps if you looked at it on a map. So the point is, there really is a giant eastern army and a giant western army. And yet, as this is being recorded, the reference is to a king of the north and south. Why? Well, because as many of you probably know, there was no real good way in the ancient days for people to evade directly from the east or from the west if they wanted to get land armies across to each other, particularly large beasts like elephants that don't do so great on ships or across deserts. There's really only one road, and that is north and south. That's it. That's how you can get there. That's the way that people traveled. So the eastern power fighting the western power would have to go through Israel. It's the crossroads of history. If you've ever wondered, why is it that God would choose this plot of land, this bit of dirt, 
What's so special about it? It's like the size of New Jersey. It's not a large piece of land. It's not the, the most notable in our entire globe. Why that? Because if you had an army that wanted to go north to south or east to west, you passed through the crossroads, Israel. And that's where God establishes people. That's the promised land where nations trample. So far up to this point, the Jews had largely remained out of the fight. You notice they weren't even mentioned. The northern king fights the southern king. They're on their land. They're in their farmlands. Looking out a window again, looks like they're at it again. Another battle out there. And the reason that the Jews were kind of overlooked largely is because they weren't unique. Most of the people groups in those empires were overlooked. In other words, the way that these empires would spread and control vast territories is rather than just destroying the people that were there, oftentimes, especially under Alexander, this is how he grew so quickly, they, the, the invading army would choose to just assimilate more gods into their pantheon. We'll worship your gods. We'll, we'll put sacrifices over here. We'll follow your general codes. Uh, we'll even let your governors, your rulers, your kings, we'll even let them stay in positions of power. We'll pay them. We'll even give them more money. And we'll protect them. All we want is the ability to pass through. We want taxes so that we can be able to pay for our expanding empire. That's for your benefit too. And we need to conscript labor occasionally and sometimes uh, warriors to fight in battles. And that's what they did. So the way that these cultures worked, it was a melting pot of people. It was fascinating. These, they spoke different languages. They used different currencies. They worshiped different, different religions and different altars. And the empires would just go, mostly that's okay. As long as you don't get in the way of our conquering, we'll let you stay here. And we'll enjoy peace together as we fight over the other nations out there. And so that's what was largely going down in this period of time. Not perfectly, but largely. Until this point. Until... Antiochus III uh, goes against Ptolemy in the south. And we have the Jewish men, these violent among your own people, side with the king in the north, and they go attack the southern king. And so, they're finally back in the crosshairs. Now, they're on the map. They're on the radar. They are now combatants. John Kelvin, is a, uh, when he wrote his commentary on this hundreds of years ago, um, he made this note I thought was helpful. Listen to what John Kelvin said regarding the word violent here. He gets to the point of, I think, why this is written like that. It doesn't just say, hey, some guys will fight. It actually specifies violent among your own people. He says this, without doubt, the angel here uses the word to imply factious men. That's contentious men, argumentative men, fight, fighting men. For the people had no other chance of standing except by remaining quiet and united. The word then applies to those who violated that unity. For when one attached himself to foreign monarchs, Judea became exposed as a prey to either the Syrians or Egyptians. You get it? Now that these guys finally go, you know what, we're going to fight too. We're kind of sick of watching this go on. We're going to join the battle. They didn't watch long enough to learn that no one ever wins. North fights south, and south fights north, and it's always on your land. You really want to side with somebody? You think that's the best idea? That's what they did. And so, it did not work out well for them. And they did this in order to fulfill the vision. And I, I don't think, that doesn't mean that they were like reading, hey, we need to do this, because it says it in Daniel. No, the vision was given, this is what's going to happen, and to be sure, that is, in fact, what went down. They entered the fray, and from that point forward, the Jews are now going to be a target for both north and south. 
no longer trusted to stay out of the battle. They've now taken up arms. We're going to have to watch out for that crew. This battle, north to south again, resulted in the Egyptians, the southern kingdom, retaliating against the Jews for their involvement. And then the north king, as he comes through, does the same thing. He now is suspicious of those armed Jews, those people able to fight, and is concerned that they may side with the south. And so it goes poorly for the people of God in the land of Israel. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he, he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Once again, rallying of troops, north to south, fighting again. And the Egyptians were unable to resist the advance of the north this time. And he stands, this northern king, in the glorious land. That's, that's Israel. That's Old Testament language for Israel. He stands in that land with destruction in his hand. This all goes to pave the way for a coming Christ. Continuing on to verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. This is when Antiochus, in an attempt to weaken and ruin Ptolemy, gave to him in marriage his daughter Cleopatra. He sends Cleopatra, northern king, sends his daughter down to the south. Go marry my enemy, Cleopatra. Sends her down there. And his hope is that she will be on his side and sway the king, maybe be, uh, maybe be a spy, maybe even an assassin, and it backfires because she falls in love with Ptolemy in the south and she sides with him. And so it's, no, it's not to his advantage. He, he sends the daughter of women. That phrase just means uh, a woman of beauty. That's, that's the, what the idea is there in mind. It's talking about her beauty. She was known to be a beautiful woman. And her fidelity to her husband outweighs her faithfulness to her homeland, and she takes on a new mantle and cares for the Egyptian Ptolemies. 18 and 19 says, Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put to an end his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So Antiochus, after he realizes that the southern Egyptians are no longer much of a threat, remember I told you they were kind of losing their power at this period of time, Antiochus says, well, I'm going to expand to the west. And he starts to battle through Asia Minor until he runs into this little group of people that doesn't seem like too big of a problem, Rome. And he's beaten soundly. He retreats back east where he eventually dies in the campaign to sack some temples in the east. He actually dies during the sacking of a temple. That's the end of our history for today. Because what's going to happen next is he dies. Antiochus III dies, passes his power to his son. The rule goes to his son, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is one of the most notable non-Jewish figures in the entirety of Jewish history. And we'll get there next week. Now, it's sobering to read history. And all the death, the days coming and going. My wife and I, we, we, we almost never, ever watch movies. But when we do watch a movie together, we sometimes like, want, like the period dramas, like you know, a different time period uh, of the world. Like where we, everything was different, and it's kind of interesting to see that. When you watch a movie of a person back in the 1800s, or the 1600s, or the 1300s, 
And it's just sobering to realize, like even when the hero wins at the end, you're like, ah, oh, he's dead. And so are his kids and their kids and the great-great-grandkids. Because that's what happens. History marches from one generation to the next. People come and go. How many people of God existed during that period of history that was just covered? We covered almost 300 years right there in these few minutes together. How many faithful people lived and died? No record of them given here, but the Lord knows. It's sobering. It kind of helps you zoom out from life for a second and think of just how big history is, how big this world is compared to our little problems of the day. And what were the Jews to do during that time? I want you to think for a second, what were they supposed to do? The Jews lived in this Israel-Palestine area. They lived on the trampling ground of empires. What were they supposed to do? What was their commission from God? To raise up a mighty fort against them? To, to, to take over more land? To expand westward? To eastward? Right? What, what, what was their charge? What, when the men gathered together and the women gathered together and, and the kids asked their parents, what are, we, what are we supposed to do? What did they tell them? This is the plan that God has laid out for us. Do you know what it was? Stay faithful. Remain in the land. Stay faithful, remain in the land. Obey God, obey his law, there's nowhere else to go. This is where the Messiah comes. This is the city he sends him to. This is where the next age kicks off. This is what we're supposed to do, is, is maintain here, and not to turn over our hearts and our lives and our, our faith to false gods. But we are to take our faith in Yahweh God and pass it to our children, and they're to do that again and again and again and again and again until the Messiah King comes. That was their plan. That was their commission. That was the Old Testament commission of the people of God. I know sometimes I want to pause and do this. I, I want to make sure that you understand, especially anyone here who might not be a believer in the Lord Jesus, you might go, I, I think I know the basic Christian ideas, what you're talking about, but... And you guys spend all this time in this ancient history. Like, why does that matter for today? Well, you need to know why the Old Testament talks all about these Jews. What was it about these Israelites of all the nations of the world that was so important? Were they better? Were they bigger? Were they wiser? Were they stronger? No. Were they holier? No. Not at all. It's because God, before he even brought them out of Egypt, purchased them, he promised their ancestor, of all the nations of the world, one of them, one of them, will raise up a mighty king that will be the savior of the world. One of them was going to be the nation. And in this case, it was Israel. Not because of anything in them. He sovereignly chose, I will choose you. You will be the nation. And I will work with you. That's why that's all this history. All this history in the Old Testament talks about Israel. Even what we just went through here, those uh, couple dozen verses we walked through right now. Why did we go through those? Why did it not mention India? Tons of crazy stuff happened on the, the eastern side of that empire fighting. The Gauls invaded from the north in Europe and came against war elephants for the first time and thought, oh no. Uh, the, the, the Romans were raising up forces. We had southern, uh, southern and western territories that were occupied in Africa. The whole of the world was full of people. Why are those histories not recorded? Because that's not the story of the Messiah coming. See? And this is why this matters. The Jews were to remain there, remain faithful, because it would be through them that the perfect God-King would be born, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. 
This Jesus who was born, who was raised amongst all of these sinful people, who was raised in tumultuous times as Greece turned all over their power to, to Rome and, and all of the, 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 the stuff that went down. We're going to cover a lot of this in this next, couple, next week or two. But Jesus lived perfectly. He never sinned once. He taught with great authority. The people knew there was something distinct about him. He did miracles. He proved that he was exactly who he said he was, the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. And even though the people didn't understand it, he went to the cross and died a bloody, gruesome death for all of those who will ever put their faith in him. So that if you believe in Jesus, all the punishment due for your sins will have been paid for in Jesus. And Jesus died, but he rose again on the third day. And you too can have eternal life if you believe in Jesus. How do you get saved? How do you get saved? How do you make peace with God? How can you lock in eternity with Christ? How can you know that when you die, you'll go to heaven and not to hell? How can you know that? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you do. It's not your works. It's not stopping to do all the bad things. It's not understanding or being interested in world history. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're not a believer today, if you don't really quite get what I just said there, don't understand those things, talk to anyone around you before you leave. You need to know this gospel and believe it to be saved. That's why when we get to the end of the gospel accounts, Jesus dies, raises again. He ascends into heaven. What happens to the the globe? From that point forward, a New Testament commission is given. And we, while we are to remain faithful, it's no longer remain faithful, stay in the land. That's why you and I don't live in Israel right now. It's remain faithful and what what are we to do? How How are we supposed to live out that faithfulness? Make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That's what changes for us. But the one part of the plan that's very much the same for us today as it was back then, remain faithful. Remain faithful. Here are my thoughts I kind of want to use this to bring us to the end. God had ordained that each of these events would occur. All these details, everything that went down. He knew every detail of every era, where it would land. He knew all the parts and pieces of it. He tells Daniel, this is what's going to go down. Unchangeable. It's going to, go, it's going to happen. Imagine what it would have been like for a Jew, for a Jew to live in those days. Read read the prophecies of Daniel, knowing they're they're just waiting to the coming Messiah. That's not unlike many other periods of their history. When they were in the days of the Exodus, uh, prior to the Exodus, when they were in slavery in Egypt. Prior to that time, it had been prophesied that there would be a period of 400 years before they'd finally be taken out of that land and brought to the promised land. And if they're at year 300, they're like, "Uh, I'm going to die in slavery. What if they were of the group that was brought into the wilderness? And because of their cowardice, they were not permitted to enter into the promised land, and they knew how many years will they get to be there? 40. And so if you're 40, 50, 60 years old, if you're anyone over that age, over 40, what what do you know? I'm going to die here in the sand. There's no other future for me. This is it. How about the people in Daniel's day in the exile? Daniel was a young man when he was brought into exile, but they were told 70 years you're going to be in exile. What if you were 30 or 40 then? I will never, ever not be in exile. That's my lot. And so what would you do? Be faithful. That's what you do.
living a faithful life before God is more important than anything that you do. Living a faithful life before God is more important than anything you will ever accomplish or set your mind to. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is the goal. What's our Christian goal? Faithfulness. How do we do that? We'll glorify God. We strengthen believers. We reach the lost. But what is that? What is that? That's faithfulness. That's what that is, summarized in a word. You living a faithful life is more important than you getting married. It's more important than you having kids, or how many. You being faithful is more important than how much money you make or successes you can tally up. You living a faithful life is more important than where you live, how many friends you have, more important than any of the list of your accomplishments, no matter how holy. Planted 200 churches, sent out 400 missionaries. Faithfulness is a higher order command for you. And the way we know that is because some people aren't going to get married. Some people aren't going to have kids. Some people aren't going to send out 400 missionaries. Some people aren't going to have the list of accomplishments. And yet they can please God by being faithful. Faithful. This is why we don't look at each other, ought not look at each other and judge and count and, and okay, see these, these notches for him and her and, okay, she did this and he did this. And, okay, who was better? We don't do that. God alone can judge that according to his standards. Faithfulness. This last week I was reading with my kids our new kind of order of uh, family worship at the end of the night is I still do the little kids' Bible with the youngest one so that all, all of the kids pile on my lap. Usually the kids when are standing behind the couch kind of looking over my shoulder. And I read through a Bible story. And when I get to the end of that story, we pray and then we sing songs together and then the littlest ones go to sleep. And then the bigger ones stay awake and we read through that same comic book story in the real Bible. Okay, we open up my ESV and we read it through there. Because these kids have got a pile of questions about that. I want to see how much does it match up. And they try to judge sometimes. Ah, they were off a little on the story. They didn't say that part. Yeah, they don't really tell you about the bloodiest parts in the kids' ones oftentimes, but they get it here. And they also get some of the details they wouldn't have gotten elsewhere. And of course, it just helps them become familiar with God's word. We were in Isaiah 6. And after reading through the comic book version of it, it showed the pictures of Isaiah this young prophet who was called and falls on his face before the, the holy of holies. He sees the Lord in this vision and a, and a seraphim and an angel comes down and grabs a coal and touches it to his lips, takes away his sins so that he can speak in the presence of God. And God says, who will I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. I read through Isaiah 6, of course, in the, in the, in the adult Bible here with my older kids. And as we walk through uh, I tried to help them understand, and they were astounded by the fact that God said, I need someone to preach the truth to people who will refuse to hear it. And Isaiah's like, for how long? And God says, until they're all dead, the land is a waste, and the cities are ruined. And Isaiah does. It's a depressing book, Isaiah. It's a hopeful book. But there wasn't a mass conversion in his day. There wasn't a mass turning to faithfulness in his day. There wasn't a revival like we all pray for. There were moments of good, but there was a lot of bad in Isaiah's life. Was he fruitless? No. 
Isaiah obeyed the Lord, and he was faithful. Faithful. I'll do it, Lord. My daughter has her year-end project uh, uh, it's at our little homeschool co-op. She dressed up as Elizabeth Elliot and told the story. She had to read and study all the books of her, her writing and stuff like that and then give a whole report on it. And it strikes me as amazing about Jim Elliot and the four other Christian brothers who went into uh, the Amazon rainforest to share the good news with Indian tribes that had never met outsiders. They arrived there, and these five men showed up on a beach and were speared to death. Elizabeth Elliot, the mother, uh, the, the widow, eventually goes back and shares the gospel with the very same people, individual people who slaughtered her husband. So it's an incredible story of faithfulness. But you ask, were those five guys, were they fruitless? They accomplished nothing. They just spilled their blood on another bit of sand. How many billions of people before them have spilled their blood on some sand? Was that fruitless? You see, you and I have to see things with spiritual eyes in these ways. You can be faithful and not produce what the world thinks is worthy of a check in your favor. I want you to imagine for a moment these Jews living in the day we discovered, this period of time, they're not even mentioned. Just the bad guys, just the violent men are mentioned. That's it. It's all that's mentioned about them. What happened? Did they have peace? Did they have prosperity? Did they build giant cities and take over nations and sway the entire, move, uh, the entire history book by what they accomplished and what they did? In one sense, no. In another sense, more than anyone in history. From them came Jesus. What greater moment in history than to be in the faithful line of those who preceded Christ. They didn't have so much of what you and I have, and they lived faithfully. Consider this. You do not need peace to have a faithful life. You do not need freedom to live a faithful life. You do not need the First Amendment or the Second or the Constitution to live a faithful life. You don't even need fair elections and wise and good leaders to live a faithful life. In other words, the environment around you does not determine whether or not you can be faithful. It may determine whether you die for your faithfulness, how much suffering you'll have to endure for your faithfulness, but faithfulness is the charge nonetheless. We have it so good, and we ought to be so grateful for the many blessings that we get to enjoy as believers today in the Western world. We're really blessed. But don't think for a moment that our fidelity to God depends on those things. If you're like me and you look at some of the news things that are going on out there in the world and think, oh no, this world is getting worse by that. What's going on out there? I see so many people getting stressed over the things that are happening in the world around us. It's easy to do that. And ask, what are we to do about it? And I want you to imagine for this for a moment. Just think about this. If you handed a near-perfect utopian society to a group of faithless God-haters, hate God, wonderful society, you hand that to them over here. And over here, you find a faithful, God-loving group of people and hand them a near-dystopian wasteland. And then count 50 years. Which do you think will have a better result? 
faithful people of God. Why? Because you can give something good to those who hate the Lord and His plan, or something bad to those who love it and watch it play out. This period of history we covered in Daniel chapter 11 covered about 300 years, and the focus here on this vision is to point to an almost entirely upon other nations, barely mentions the Jews, just those who trample all over God and His people. For much of Israel's history, they do not enjoy half of the many blessings that we have today. Yet even through all of this, God preserved a remnant. He preserved a remnant. So what are Christians in America going to do if things continue to get hostile, things continue to get worse? The marching orders are clear. Be faithful and grow the kingdom. When you find yourself stressing out over the news cycle, another heartbreaking turn of events in the world outside, go home and tell your kids a Bible story. Go home and fight the battle against a sin in your life and commission others to help you. Go home and open the word of God and allow this to wash you more than the news cycle. Go go home and log out of Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and never log back in again, ever. That stuff is cancerous to the heart and the mind and the soul. I am totally convinced of it. Don't give the world one more leverage point over your thinking. That's how we fight. Faithfulness, faithfulness. It's how we win. I want to explain a simple way how this worked out for me just in this last week. Towards the beginning of the week, I was in conversations with our realtor, investor, talking through getting this building, and I'll just be really honest. This whole deal's on a knife's edge for things that are totally out of our control. We have no, we have literally no control. I explained this to somebody, it feels like we're driving the car from the trunk. Turn left, I think. And uh, so at, at a point where I was like, okay, you know, tr- truth be told, this, is, this looks, it did then, it looks more likely we're going to lose this than get this. <sighs> the months of energy and work and midnights that I've been up working through this with a whole bunch of other faithful people at our church who love to try to serve and help do whatever it takes to get us across this finish line on this space. So I started looking at backup options. All right, all right, Lord, I think the wise thing, the wise thing, you haven't, if God said you will get this place, I'll be like, well, done, I can just sleep. (laughs) But he didn't say that. And so I've started looking at backup options, and I'll just be really straight with you. There's nothing, and I'm not being picky. There is nothing. A few hours of that, I was just kind of despondent by it. Like, you've got to be kidding. There's nothing out there. So I texted a couple of my brothers, Eric, Drew, I texted you guys, you remember, right? And I was like, oh, I am exhausted. And it will be devastating if we end up losing this. And all of this work for this property ends up being fruitless. And as good brothers, they both quickly replied, it will be fruitful. Somehow, God gets his fruit. They're right. Do you know what we need more than a church building? Faithful believers to put in it. Men and women of God who are committed to trust him and raise their children to do likewise. Remain faithful in the land as we multiply the kingdom. Faithfulness is never fruitless. It always produces what God says. 
Jesus himself says that every good tree bears good fruit. He says, remain in the vine, remain, abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, what? Fruit. He tells the story of the four soils. A seed gets planted in the ground and some give up. Some the enemy sweeps away. But those who are faithful, those who remain, will bear fruit. There's no such thing as a fruitless plant in Jesus' economy. And so what do we commit ourselves to? Faithfulness. Lord, help me commit to what you say is right. There will be fruit. When you live according to God's word, you will produce exactly the kind and amount of spiritual fruit that God wants for you to produce. Do you, know, do you, know, do you think the Jews knew what time period in history they lived in? Like how many years they'd have to wait? Probably not. Same with you and I. Jesus could return tomorrow. He could wait a thousand years. We simply just don't know. Our day in global history could be monumental. In other words, maybe after this age is done, and we're looking back at the giant history of all of, uh, kind of the history work, the history book, that, that tells all these significant events in world history. Will we be a chapter, our lifetimes be a chapter, or a footnote? Will we get 1800, 1850, 1900, then in 2300, oh, there we are, asterisk at the bottom, then the internet. We don't know. We'd have no idea if we're going to be said in a, in a verse, skipped over between verses, <laughs> or if we're going to have a whole chapter written about what God, God is doing in our age. We don't know. But in order for you and I to be faithful, it doesn't matter because the comparative noteworthiness of our day is inconsequential. So what do we do? Remain faithful. Glorify God. Strengthen believers, reach the lost, do faithful things, and trust in God. The prophecy is far from over. We're going to get into some very significant events in uh, next week and beyond. We can come back for that. Let's pray as we close, asking the Lord to help us with our faithfulness. God, we love you and we trust you, and our faith doesn't need to be giant. This is awesome. This is awesome that you have promised us that we need faith the size of a mustard seed. Just a little bit of faith goes really far, Lord. Why? God, because we know that our faith is in you, the greatest mover and shaker in all of human history, the one who brought all things into accordance with his plan, the one who designed this redemptive course to play out precisely as you designed. And Lord, we don't always understand or know, and we need help to see those things occasionally, and sometimes we just need to sit down, be quiet, and trust you. Help us to encourage one another to that, Lord. Help us to be a people who are faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.